name's Aaron, and um, it's, been, it's been a little while since I've been up here. And uh, I have the privilege this week of walking us through week three of our series titled Remember. And the goal for that series has been really, really simple. Um, really, all we're trying to do is encourage you all as our, as our church family. We're trying to encourage ourselves as well. And, and the way that we're doing that is we're looking at this text that we've called our anchor text. It's Psalm 103. It's a prayer that people have been leaning into for literally for thousands of years. And, and when they lean into this prayer, the purpose is pretty simple, yet it's really profound. It's, it's to drive the promises of God deeply into their souls. Um, and th- this prayer shows us five benefits. Uh, we're calling them the benefits of God. And these benefits are literally available to any follower of Jesus Uh, They always have been and they always will be. And so the writer of this psalm, of Psalm 103, what he really is telling us to do is to remember them and to drive them into the deep recesses of our hearts. And so each week we've been focusing on uh, a, a different benefit of God, all for the purpose of encouraging our hearts with the promises of God. So let me remind you what Psalm 103 has to say. Uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 1. It says, My soul praise Yahweh and all that is within me. Praise his holy name. My soul praise the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your sin. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with goodness. Amen to absolutely all of that. And so today what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to zoom in and take a look at the third benefit that this psalm calls us to remember. It's in verse 4. It's he redeems your life from the pit. And just um, I, f- I feel like this is important to say. I think redemption can be a somewhat touchy topic to navigate. And, and the reason is it, uh, the implication is that when you start talking about redemption, what you're implying is that there's something wrong with us. And I don't know about you, but I feel like I've lived, uh, and this is kind of a confession, I've lived a vast majority of my life not really having any trouble pointing out what's wrong with all the people around me. The real tension arises in my life when people start pointing out that there's something wrong in me. I can have a hard time with that. I get defensive. I get dismissive. But I have to admit that, that all the growth that I've ever seen in my life has always come through someone loving me enough to tell me that there's something wrong with me. And I think uh, another way to look at this is what I've found is that the people around me can see me far more clearly than I can see myself. And because of that, when I allow the people closest to me to speak into my life, it's almost like having a window into my own heart, which sounds really nice, but it's terrifying. Um, So this promise of God, that God redeems your life from the pit, what I'm suggesting is that it's a window into every single human heart. And what it implies is that there's something deeply wrong with all of us. That's the gravity of this little three-letter word, pit. That that word pit is a metaphor. Really, it's a metaphor for a situation that we just can't get ourselves out of. It's something that no one can escape on their own strength. And so I think if we want to understand this verse and maybe take its implications seriously in our own lives, I think it's important that we consider the gravity of what it says about our need for God's redemption. I also think that it's, um, it's important to, to point out that, 
not everybody agrees that we have this intrinsic need for God's redemption. What I'm not saying is that people reject the notion that we need redemption. I think generally speaking, to some degree or another, everybody would agree that we need redemption from something. Maybe redemption from some political ideology or a traditional view on, on sex or marriage or gender. I think there are countless things that people, regardless of their beliefs, would suggest we as a society need redemption from. So I think, generally speaking, people agree with the notion that we need redemption. My, and, and, and from my vantage point, I don't even think they're shy about that. The, again, the, the, the tensions arise when we start suggesting that the brokenness in this world doesn't just exist around us, it exists inside of us. Uh, there's a theologian by the name of uh, uh, Tim Keller. I think he brilliantly you know, exegetes culture and helps us understand the cultural moment that we're in. And here's what he suggests about the moment that we're in. He says there's an increasing number of people who see ideas, and he's talking about redemption and salvation and uh, the primary message, the central message of Jesus. He's saying there's an increasing number of people that see that as an obstacle to social progress. That there's an increasing number of people who believe that the primary thing we need redemption from is the very notion that we need redemption. And so even if you don't hold to this perspective that, that Tim Keller is suggesting exists, I think chances are you probably know someone who does. Or maybe you do hold to this, uh, this perspective, that the, uh, that the notion that we need redemption, that we're in a situation that we can't get ourselves out of, is oppressive and stunting the social progress. I just want to offer you something to consider. Um, would you consider the implications if we don't adequately address the issues that we actually have, and not just the issues that we have, but the root causes. Would you at least consider that, it, that, that it's dangerous to not address the root causes of all the, the brokenness, all the issues, all the things that we say are wrong with this world? Um, it, it, would you say that it's dangerous? Wouldn't you agree that it's dangerous to not adequately diagnose how the trauma we've either experienced firsthand or vicariously has impacted our lives and here's all that I'm suggesting. Let me just distill this. All I'm suggesting is that because we live in a broken world, I think there might be things hidden inside of us that if they go unresolved, what will end up happening is we'll become the kind of people that we really don't want to become. And I, 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 here's what I'm realizing, that starting a message that, that, that's supposed to be encouraging like this <laughs> probably doesn't feel very encouraging. So let me get to the other implication that's in Psalm 103 verse 4, because there's another one there. So the first one is we're all on the hook, and that's terrible, and that's terrifying, and that's deflating, and whatever. But the second implication is this. Life's not supposed to be this way. Life is not supposed to be this traumatic, this downtrodden. It's not supposed to be beating us up and breaking us down. But, and here's what that means about a God who redeems. It means that the God of Christianity is the kind of God who refuses, even if it costs him absolutely everything. He refuses to leave it that way. He's the kind of God who's willing to enter the pit and the brokenness in us and around us and do something about it. He's the kind of God capable of carrying us through the most painful of circumstances in a way that makes us stronger, wiser, and more deeply formed into the likeness an image of Jesus. There are two universal truths that I see in Psalm 103, verse 4. Um, on the one hand, we're in a pit that we can't get ourselves out of. But on the other, God's willing to do whatever it takes to intervene 
in a way that causes all the external breakdowns in our lives to refine us rather than define us. Amen? So with all that in mind, uh, we're going to take a look at a story that unfolded between 1600 and 1700 B.C. It all took place in what's now modern-day Israel, Syria, and Palestine. And it's a story that you may be familiar with. It's about a man named Joseph. Uh, And like so many of us, he was the product of a dysfunctional upbringing and a dysfunctional family. Uh, His father had some pretty deep issues that he never dealt with. And those issues, what they end up doing when they went unchecked is they actually poison his entire family. And by Joseph's teenage years, his life had spiraled completely out of control. Uh, But but what we're going to see is that through all the backstabbing and the betrayal and the deceit and and, and the pride, what becomes abundantly clear is that some of his problems, although they were external, his primary problem was internal. What he needed redemption for more than the dysfunction swirling around him was the dysfunction that had poisoned his own heart. And it was turning him into somebody that he really never wanted to become. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want Just lean into this story. Allow yourself to be drawn in to this story because I think if you do, what it'll help you do is develop a deeper, deeper understanding of your own life. And I think it'll help you develop a better understanding of the things that you've been through or maybe the things that you're going through right now that feel uh, just, just utterly painful. And the reality is those things are shaping you in a certain way. And I think it'll give you a new perspective on God's redemptive work in your own life. Um, you see, what happens in Joseph's life is he's redeemed by God from a literal pit. And if we let it, I think this story of God's redemption will give us a window into our own lives and help us see three things. The first is our need for God's redemption. The second is the method of God's redemption. And then the third is the promise of God's redemption. Go ahead and turn with me to Genesis. I'm in chapter 37. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man working The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age. And he made a robe of many colors for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably. So in the, in the beginning of, of verse 2, we have this really quaint intro, uh, and it says that we're going to hear about the family records of Jacob, and what, what follows is not quaint, and it doesn't disappoint. You see, um, on a surface level, Jacob appears to be a made man. He's got a large family. Uh, he's got a lot of influence. He's got a ton of wealth. And on the surface, there's this illusion that this family is, is, is well-established, But underneath it all, there's something brewing, there's something wrong, and I think that that highlights our universal need for God's redemption. And by the time we get to verse 3, and listen to what verse 3 says, all the dysfunction starts to erupt. Here's what's in verse 3. It says, now Israel, that's Jacob. It says, he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. (laughs) Um, I have a a younger brother. I'm sure some of y'all have siblings. I can't imagine there's anyone listening to this today that hears a line like that and thinks for a moment, "What what a healthy family dynamic. Would love to have grown up knowing that my brother was the favorite. Now, some of y'all are convinced that somebody else is the favorite, and maybe that's the case, but there's no room for doubt here. It just simply says, 
Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now, now there's, a, there's a really long backstory here that got us to this point. I'm going to distill that for you because I think it's helpful. It's, um, and what you, need to, what you need to realize is that Jacob was raised by a father who did the same exact thing. He overtly loved his brother Esau more than he loved Jacob. And so Jacob literally, he grew up desperate for love and approval, the love and approval from his father that he never actually received. And so from childhood, childhood for the duration of his life is what it seems, he just spent a lot of time looking for love and approval in some really unhealthy ways. His des- and his desperation for love and approval, what it ends up doing is just poisoning every single one of his relationships. And so Jacob, uh, he's married to this woman named, named Rachel. Uh, but the challenge is he has a, he has a somewhat dis- distorted view of Rachel. She's not just his wife, and she's not just beautiful. Um, for Jacob, she was the very thing that he looked to for a sense of significance of meaning. He had built his identity on her. She, be, she had become the emotional center of his life. And, I'm, I'm, and he's not the only one that does that. I think all of us have something at the emotional center of our lives. And if that's true, if you're willing to at least entertain that, here's some questions I think you should ask yourselves. What is it? And is it stable enough to hold you up when everything's falling apart? Is it stable enough to actually build your identity on? So for Jacob, that was Rachel. And everything in his life was good as long as he had Rachel. But, 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 but zoom out for a second. Can you see what's going on here? So Jacob was raised in a toxic family environment. And he had a toxic childhood home. And even if he, he didn't want to, he's literally recreating that toxic family environment for his own family. And so, you, you know, you fast forward a little bit and you see Rachel gives birth to Joseph and then has another son named Benjamin. Well, she dies giving, giving birth to Benjamin, which is Jacob's youngest son. And when Jacob loses Rachel, that, that void, that place in his heart that he'd filled with her is completely reopened. And he has to fill it with something. And what we learn is he fills it with Joseph. And that's, that's what's going on when Jacob gives Joseph a robe of many colors. It's not just a robe. What it means is Jacob is lavishing, he's lavishing money and affection on Joseph in this toxic, and I'm calling it toxic, this toxic attempt to feel whole again. And it's starting to impact everyone. Now look what it says in verse 2. It says, at 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. There's some real significance to this bad report. Uh, because it's not just bad because it lacked detail. It's bad because it was deliberately damaging. That Hebrew word for bad report, it can mean one of three things. It can mean a false report. It can mean a lie. Or it can mean a, re- a misrepresentation of some kind. And there might be a worst option in there. But there's no best option in there when it comes to a bad report. So what's going on here is Joseph is intentionally lying, and it's causing hatred to grow in his brother's lives. Now you get to verses 5 through 10, Joseph starts having these dreams. And these dreams basically put him in a a position of superiority, and they put everybody else in a position of what seems to be inferiority. And he has no qualms about sharing those dreams with his brothers, and his brothers, probably justifiably so, get irate. 
So that's the first time he has the dream. Then he has another, another dream, and instead of keeping it to himself, because he already has a case study for how they're going to take it, he doesn't keep it to himself. He shares it with them again, and like, just like last time, they get angry. And, and they get even more angry this time, and it's to the degree that his father, Jacob, comes down pretty hard on him, and he say, he's basically like, hey, Joseph, like, cool off on the dreams. Like, you're going to have to, like, walk that back. You can't be sharing stuff like that in this household. But all that to say, there, there, there are some commentators that look at J- Joseph's behavior, they analyze it, and they suggest that at this point in his life, he's become so out of touch with reality that he's actually a sociopath. But even if that's not the case, at a very minimum, Joseph is pathologically insensitive to the impact that his words and his behavior have on the people around him. And Joseph's dreams aren't the issue, and the coat, the ornamented coat isn't the issue either. The issue was that Jacob, his father, never dealt with his issues. He never faced the trauma of being rejected by his dad. Uh, and that's and, and the only thing he's ever done is compensated for that in some really unhealthy ways, and it's ruining his family. And um, I know I have a ton of growth ahead of me as a father, but I'm just going to say I think this is terrible parenting. And as much as Jacob probably hated the character flaws he saw in his dad, and as much as he probably swore that he would never become like his father, he's making the same mistakes that his dad made. And I just want to offer you this to think about. I think there's a degree to which brokenness tends to run in families. And I'm sure when you reflect on your childhood home, there's probably character flaws that your parents had. that You, you were on to more than they were on to. You hated them then. You hate them now. And if that's the case, all I'm, all I'm asking you to do is ask yourself a couple of questions. Um, the first one is this. How have those character flaws impacted you? And then the second side of that is, what do you think, you, what do you think it would take to heal from how those character flaws have impacted your life. And, and, and for, for all of us, this is what I'm asking us to consider, that each of us has experienced some degree of dysfunction, pain, and trauma as a result of an unhealthy relationship. And I don't think, um, and I think you'll probably agree with this, I don't think we just outgrow those things or we get to a point where all those things are in the rear view. Or that we just, we heal from those things because we adopt a, a certain set of beliefs or practices. Um, there's, a, there's a pastor by the name of Pete uh, Scazzaro. He's up in Brooklyn, New York. He spends a lot of time talking about emotional health and speaking specifically to followers of Jesus. And here's how he put it. He says, when you become a Christian, Jesus is in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. And... Uh, and <laughs> Except for me. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I got way too much grandpa in my bones. At any rate, what that is, is that's really just a clever way of saying we've been impacted by our relationships and the environments we live in in ways that we don't quite understand. There's stuff we still need to work through and heal from. But beliefs aside, let, let's just push beliefs aside for a second. I think what this story shows us, regardless of what you believe, believe is that you have experiences trauma, pain, and hang-ups that you still need to work through. And if they're not dealt with in a way that brings redemption and healing, you're going to become somebody that you never really wanted to become. If we aren't healed from the internal brokenness that we carry, 
Here's what I'm suggesting. All the external brokenness around us could be resolved, and it's not going to make one bit of difference in our lives. So, so in this story, underneath what looks like a prosperous, established family are these hidden depths of brokenness that are starting to surface. And what we're learning is that they're going to absolutely destroy this family and everyone in their path if they're not dealt with. Joseph, the son that Jacob loved the most, he had love directed his way all day, every day, in ways that no one else in his family had. Here's what he's become. He's become sociopathic. He's become insensitive. He's become arrogant. He's become shallow. He's become prideful. He's the kind of person that's going to wound everyone in his path. And Joseph's brothers, here's what they've become. They've become resentful and they've become bitter. And they're the kind of people that will resort to violence as a means of self-protection. This family is literally being ravaged from the inside out. And every one of them from top to bottom is in the pit that the psalmist is talking about in Psalm 103. And their biggest issue is not that they have issues. It's that they have issues they can't resolve on their own strength. And I think the dynamics of this family are really just a microcosm of every family. I don't think we're that much different than, than Jacob and Joseph and all his brothers. And I think this story is here to show us that every one of us is living in a broken world, and, and, and because of that, every one of us is carrying a degree of brokenness that only God's redemption can fix. I think this story shows us that the pit we need redemption from isn't just that our childhood home or our relationships have wounded us. It's that we tend. I think this is what I find myself tending to do, and I'm just asking you to consider if you find yourself doing the same thing. We tend to look to something or someone other than God, to be our source of healing, identity, significance, and security. That's why we need God's redemption. But now the second thing this story shows us is the method of God's redemption. Turn with me to Genesis 37. I'm in verse 23. Here's what it says. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off his robe, the robe of many colors that he had on. Then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So just in case you somehow miss this, things are imploding. Like, things are absolutely imploding for Joseph and for his entire family. And just so we're clear, there's not a hero in this story. There's not one member of that family that is the hero of this story. And um, a lot happens after this that we simply just don't have the time to cover. So let me give you, let me give you a, uh, what I believe is a quick summary. So what happens next, and this is literally what, what, what's happening what happens next is um, this is dysfunction just unchecked, running its course. So here's what happens. Joseph's brothers, they violently assault him. They strip him naked, and they throw him into a pit. Now that Hebrew word through, here's what it literally means. It means to dump a body into the grave. So they left their brother for, for dead. That's how bad it had gotten. And then they're standing by and they're having lunch and they seize an opportunity. They see some, some human traffickers making a move through town. They, they grab Joseph out of the pit. They sell him to human traffickers for 20 pieces of silver. The traffickers then take him to Egypt and sell him to um, the head of Pharaoh's guard. And, and so Joseph ends up in Egypt, and it, it seems like things are kind of cooling off. You know, he's, fought, he's removed from his family and all that dysfunction. He's, he's, he's being taken care of. And then uh, the head of Pharaoh's guard, the guard's wife, accuses Joseph of rape, and he finds himself in prison. 
But while he's there, he ends up making some pretty uh, some key connections with some of the people in the king's court. They discover some, some skill sets that he has. He's got this spiritual insight. He's got some wisdom. He's even got some administrative abilities. And what kind of changes um, their view entirely of Joseph is Pharaoh has this dream. No one can interpret it. Joseph interprets it. And what ends up happening is Joseph tipped Pharaoh's hand about a famine that was, that was coming and was going to you know, destroy life. It was coming their way. It was coming hot. It was coming fast. Joseph puts Pharaoh onto this. And the way that he describes what's going to happen leads Pharaoh to believe, well, maybe Joseph has an answer to the question. So he's put in a, a, an administrative position. And through his administrative abilities, what he does is he prepares the entire nation of Egypt for a famine so that instead of death and starvation, they have surpluses of food, life flourishes, and they're actually positioned as more of a world power than, they, than they've ever been. And so, you know, rightfully so, Joseph ends up being promoted and he becomes prime minister of Egypt. Now, back home, everything's fallen apart. Nothing's changed. Things are as dysfunctional as they've ever been, if not worse. Jacob has lost absolutely all trust in his sons. They're facing this same famine that Joseph spoke to Pharaoh of. Their food supply is running out. And eventually, Jacob sends his son to Egypt to get food. And when they get there, Joseph recognizes them. The curious part is they don't recognize Joseph. And so what he does is he accuses them off the break, accuses them of being spies, and he throws them into prison. And just when they start to lose hope, Joseph shifts gears. He gives them the grain that they came to get, the food that they came to get, and he sends them on their way. Um, but he gives them one condition, and the condition is this. He's going to keep one brother as a hostage, and he's going to send them home. And they've got to bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, back to prove that they're not spies, to prove that they're telling the truth. And all, all this is unfolding, and they have no idea that they're dealing with their, their brother, Joseph, the same brother that they betrayed, that they backstabbed, that they left for dead, that they sold for 20 pieces of silver. And so when they get home and they break this news to their dad that they've got to bring Benjamin back to get their other brother out, um, Jacob refuses. You see, when he thought Joseph was gone, and this is, the, this is what Jacob does. When he thought Joseph was dead and gone, the void that he had was filled with Benjamin. And so a couple more years go by, and they're running out of food again, and they're getting so desperate that finally Jacob has no choice but to send his brothers to Egypt with Benjamin. And when they get to Joseph, Joseph gives them the grain that they're asking for, but it's a setup. You see, um, as they're making their way home, a messenger from Joseph's court chases them down and says, someone's stolen the royal silver cup. They open up everyone's bags, and they find the cup in Benjamin's bag. And so these brothers come rushing back to Joseph. They fall before him. They say, we'll be your slaves. And Joseph says, no, 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 no. That's not how it's going to work. The only one that's going to be my slave is the one who stole the cup. He's going to stay here and be my slave forever. The rest of you can go free. As you can imagine, that incited panic in these brothers' minds. And so Judah, the same one who crafted the idea that, that, that got Joseph human trafficked before, he negotiates. And the tension gets so thick, Joseph can't take it anymore. He chases everyone out of his court except for his brothers, and he says, it's me. It's your brother Joseph, and I'm dying to know how's our dad. And they're speechless. And listen to what Joseph says. It's recorded in Genesis 45. I'm in verse 4. It says, I'm Joseph, your brother. He said, 
the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be worried or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Could you imagine after going through all that, having that perspective, and then for a moment believing that somehow you came up with it on your own? Like that, something, something changed in this man's life. Something transformed in this man's life. And what, when Joseph was naked and abandoned in that pit, what no one could see is that God was silently at work. The pit was this turning point in Joseph's life that actually led to his transformation. You see, prior to this, Joseph was plagued by a plethora of character flaws that if left unchecked, they would have destroyed him and everyone in his path. Joseph had a superiority complex, a haughty arrogance. He had this desperate need for approval that made him a toxic, dangerous person. But God used every single one of the painful events in Joseph's life, the violent betrayal, the backstabbing, the imprisonment, the rejection, to obliterate the roots of the character flaws that were destroying his life. The pit was the mechanism that God used. It was the method that God used for redemption, to preserve Joseph's life. It's what redeemed his brothers from the hate that was turning them into violent criminals. It's what prevented his entire family and thousands of others from being devastated by famine. But what's so perplexing about this whole narrative account is that through it all, there's never a clear statement of how God is silently at work Uh, using all of this to change Joseph and redeem his life. There's not one verse in that stretch of Scripture that says, and God was silently working through it all. None of that is there. It's silence. It's as if God isn't even, even working. And it's not until after 13 years of silence and we get to this point in the narrative and we're able to look back with this retrospect that we can see that God was present in the minutest of details. He was present through all the chaos, the grief, The loss, the pain, the countless things that made absolutely no sense whatsoever, God was present through it all. He was present in every detail, and more importantly, he was using every brutal circumstance to preserve life. Through all the loss, God was healing Joseph. He was humbling Joseph's brothers. He was helping the whole region survive a plague, and he was dealing with the dysfunction that was distorting Jacob's entire family. He was using it all for the purpose of redemption. God was present, and he was working through every painful detail in Joseph's life. And and maybe maybe you're you're thinking, well, why has it got to be like that? Like, isn't there an easier way to get from point A to point B? I think that's a valid question, and I think you should also keep in mind, if that's a question that you have, keep this in mind. God didn't create all the pride and all the arrogance and all the cruelty and all the betrayal in this story. He's not the architect behind all the evil and all the brokenness in this world. What this story shows us about God is he is the only one capable of arranging all of that, overwhelming all of our brokenness, overruling all of the the dysfunction and the evil, and using all the things that appear to have the power to destroy us to destroy their power over us. Look, the method of God's redemption involves him using the brokenness around us to bring us to an internal place of wholeness. 
And this, this story also shows us how God is capable of and will break into our lives even when we don't even have the self-awareness to admit that we need him to. In ways we don't expect, through circumstances that seem fatal to redeem us from the brokenness that's destroying us from the inside out. That's the method of God's redemption. Now I want to show you the promise of God's redemption. Turn with me to Genesis 50. I'm in verse 18. It says, His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Like, this is the 2.0 from the conversation that happened back in chapter 45. And I think it, it gives us a real reasonable picture, something that we should expect when it comes to broken relationships and the turmoil. It takes time to heal. Right, A lot of time went by, and, and Joseph's brothers are not sure that he meant what he said the first time he said it. Also, the backstory here, the context here is Jacob just died, and they are absolutely terrified when they come to, to Joseph that Joseph is going to hold them personally accountable for their father's death. They're unsure. Jacob gives them a sense, or Joseph gives them a sense of assurance, and this right here, what it is, is it's a picture of a powerful reconciliation that's unfolding. It's a picture of the promise of God's redemption. On one hand, Joseph had become this sociopathic, insensitive, destructive person. Now he's doling out forgiveness like that's the only mode he has. His brothers were so distorted with bitterness and resentment, they'd become violent criminals. Every one of them was plagued. That's the, the, the point I'm driving at is every single one of these people was plagued by character flaws. They were all on a trajectory to becoming the kind of people that nobody wants to become. But God interrupted all of that. And the craziest thing to me, still, I can't get over this, over this. No one asked him to. There's not a place in this passage where it says, and then Joseph said, God, please help me. Like, it's not there. God interrupted this almost as if it was against their will. And so he, he's silently working through all these details. He enters the pit, and he completely flips the script. God is working through all of this external brokenness in a way that heals Joseph's inner brokenness. And, and I think all this is, it, to, to summarize, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a picture of the promise of God's redemption. And here's what it means. It doesn't matter what kind of parents you had. It doesn't matter what kind of dysfunction you're carrying around. The promise of God's redemption is that he is capable and willing to orchestrate all the brokenness in you and around you in a way that can heal our inner brokenness. Look, ultimately, the story of Joseph's redemption it points forward to an even greater promise of redemption. You see, when, when Joseph was betrayed and he was stripped naked and he was cast in that pit and he was left for dead and then he was sold for 20 pieces of silver, he was being transformed into this proverbial savior that would preserve physical life. Uh, and God didn't inter if God didn't intervene in Joseph's life, his entire family would have been wiped out. Countless people would have died of starvation. That would have completely changed the trajectory of history, but God intervened. But, but, but there's something bigger at work here that this points to, because just like Joseph, Jesus was betrayed and cast into a pit. And that pit was exponentially deeper 
because it had an exponentially deeper purpose. It wasn't just for the purpose of preserving life physically. It was for the purpose of preserving life spiritually. And it wasn't just for the purpose of preserving it for a period of time. It was for the purpose of preserving life eternally. Jesus' nakedness and sense of abandonment was far greater than Joseph's. Jesus came voluntarily And he entered the pit of our brokenness. He was stripped physically. He was stripped spiritually. And he did that. He allowed that to happen to himself because he was entering the pit of our sin to redeem us from it. So when we see Jesus entering the pit with us, here's what it should help us remember. If you feel like you're in a pit, if you feel like you're going through life and it's beating you down and you feel alone, here's what it it should help you remember, that you're not alone. Because Jesus suffered, Jesus entered the pit, and he's in the pit with you right now. He knows what it's like, and he's with you. Remember, you're not alone. No matter how heavy the circumstances get, remember his presence is surrounding you. Remember, he's working through the silence. Remember, Jesus has stripped the external breakdowns in this life of their power over us. Remember, what you're going through can't define you. Because Jesus is using it to refine you and make you stronger and wiser and more deeply formed into his image. Remembering God redeems our lives from the pit means remembering, first and foremost, life is not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be filled with suffering and betrayal and backstabbing and heartbreak and trauma and loss and grief. It's not supposed to be filled with death. It means remembering that God is the kind of God who refuses, even if it costs him absolutely everything, to leave us in our brokenness. Here's what it means. Here's here's what I just want us to remember. Remember that life is not supposed to be this way and God is actively doing something to change it. Remembering the, the, the promise of God's redemption means remembering that because of Jesus, because of Jesus, the, the, the terrible things that are unfolding in our lives do not get the last word in our lives. Because of Jesus, the best things will last forever and because of Jesus, the, the things that appear to have the power to ravage our lives will only ever refine us and re- resurrect us. Remembering that God redeems our lives from the pit means remembering that the only things we actually ever lose in this life are the painful things that we're running from anyway. Now, now to help us remember all of this, and I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come back up here with me. We're going to end our time together the same way that we've ended it the last two weeks. We're going to take um, communion together. And, and, And communion is something that Jesus instituted for his people, and he did it with a very specific purpose in mind, to help us remember who he is and the work that he's fully and completely accomplished. Now, now on your seat, um, you've got a tiny little cup. It's neatly packaged. There's a cracker on top. There's some juice on the bottom. We put those on your seats to help you prepare to take communion so that we could take communion together as a church family. Um, and that's what we're going to do. And, and, and as we get ready to do that, I just want to point out, we're going to spend a few minutes just slowing down. We're going to slow down for a couple of minutes and give ourselves an opportunity to remember what we talked about, that Jesus redeems, that God redeems our lives from the pit. And as we do that, I want, I want you to consider something that I think, I think every single one of us has this in common. Um, and it's this, we're living in a broken world. 
And secondly, because we're living in a broken world, we all, take, we all carry a degree of brokenness in us that we need God to redeem us from. And I hope that you, you remember today that regardless of how broken you feel your life might be or you feel like it's becoming, there's nothing that the redemption of Jesus can't fix. I'm going to read Psalm 103, verses 1, 1 through 5, just to remind us of these benefits of God that we're trying to, to drive deep into the recesses of our hearts. Uh, and then the worship team is going to play silently for a couple minutes to give us all a chance to remember and reflect on God's promises. Then we'll take communion together as a church family. So here's what Psalm 103 says. It says, My soul, praise Yahweh and all that is within me. Praise his holy name. My soul, praise the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. He forgives all your sin. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with goodness. Amen. You know, when, when Jesus instituted communion, he did it on the night that he was betrayed. Uh, he was sharing some final moments with his disciples. And he took bread and he shared it with them. Uh, and he said that the bread represented his body. And then he broke it and he gave them each a piece. And he told them that, that, uh, that his body was going to be broken the same way that that bread was broken. And he told them that it wasn't just going to be broken for them, but it was going to be, be broken for us. And as we take this, this bread, I just want to invite us, I want to invite all of us to remind our own hearts that we worship Jesus, a man who was literally called the bread of life, a man who came to be broken so that broken people could be made whole through him. Let's take the bread together. Now, after that, Jesus, um, Jesus took the cup, and he said that the cup represented his blood. And he explained how his blood was going to be spilled in order to redeem us. And as we take the cup, I just want to invite us to remember that salvation, although it's been made freely available to us, it came at an infinite cost because of Jesus' sacrifice. Salvation is purely available to people like us because of the spilled blood of King Jesus. Let's take the cup together. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll finish with, with one final worship song. God, we thank you for the promises that, that, that we have in you. Um, the promises that are very clearly explained or clearly laid out in Psalm 103. And God, I thank you that all of your promises have been fully and completely tested. There's not one that you won't deliver on. And it's, be, it's that way because of how you sent your son, Jesus. It's because of the, the perfect life that he lived. It's because of the atoning death that he died. And it's because of his glorious resurrection that redemption is accessible to people like us. It's because of Jesus that you're the kind of God that can actually redeem our lives from the pit, that you're the kind of God that can intervene and interrupt the trajectory that our lives are on so that we only ever become the kind of people that you've called us to become. Jesus, help us. Help us to drive the truths 
of your promise that you will redeem our lives from the pit deep into the recesses of our heart so that when we face circumstances that feel like they're going to crush us, we have this assurance that you're going to work through those kinds of circumstances only ever to complete us. Jesus, we love you. We're grateful for who you are. And we're thankful for your complete and finished work in your holy name. Amen. <laughs>